Hello, beloved children of God. I'm Grace Seaman, and you're listening to Catholic in College, a podcast to encourage Catholic college students that we're not alone in practicing our faith, even in the midst of a secular college culture. So we are back uh, with Father Rowling answering more of your guys' questions. So Father Rowling, welcome back. Good to be back. All right. So I'm going to start with this question. Uh, We want to know some cool or ridiculous stories from your traveling in Italy or Central America and maybe explain like why you were in Italy and Central America. Yes, great question. So I've had two assignments outside the diocese uh, since my priesthood, since I was ordained. Uh, The first one was for two months in the summer of 2012 to work on my Spanish in the Dominican Republic. So I got to spend two months in Central America, the Caribbean really. Mm. And then before being assigned to the seminary, which is my current assignment, I was sent to Rome for five years to get a degree in philosophy, to be able to come back and teach philosophy at the seminary. So in those five years, I remember Bishop Conley saying to me shortly before I left for Italy, in fact, the last thing that he said to me before I got on the plane was, don't let your classes get in the way of your education. And I thought, well, Bishop, are you still going to pay all those bills? And he said, (laughs) yep. I said, great, awesome. Thanks. See you later. God bless. Bye. And off I went. And while those in those five years, I got a beautiful chance to travel across Italy, uh, through parts of Africa and parts of, of Asia. But one sort of ridiculous story, I guess, I was sitting at lunch one day and a friend of mine who we had come to be kind of travel buddies, he said to me, he said, you know, you know where you need to go? I said, where do I need to go? He said, you need to go to Egypt. And I said, I do not need to go to Egypt. There's nothing in me that needs to go to Egypt. And he said, no, no, before you decide not to, he said, listen to this. Sunrise at the top of Mount Sinai. Now, then I was like, oh, man, you got to be kidding me. So <laughs> so then he, I let him sort of give me his little pitch and ploy. And before I knew it, I was buying tickets to go to Egypt. So where did you have this conversation where were you already oh sorry good question i was in rome at the time i was in rome yeah so i was in rome sit down for lunch one day at the house where i was living in rome with another i was living at the casa santa maria which is a house for american priests who are studying in rome so this other priest friend of mine came down we sat down at lunch and he asked me this question gotcha sorry sorry to fill in the backstory so he says let's go to let's go to egypt and so yeah great so we traveled down to egypt and got to the Sinai Peninsula, and then at eight, eight o'clock in the evening, landed, jumped on a bus, jumped on a little 10-passenger bus, and drove three hours into the darkness in the night and got to the base of Mount Sinai, and then spent the next four or five hours climbing to the top of Mount Sinai. And it was at the top that we were able to celebrate Mass. There was about five of us priests who all went together, and we got to celebrate Mass at the top of Mount Sinai one morning as the sun is rising and it was just incredible but one of the things so it's in the middle of lent right and the readings totally unplanned at least by us human beings but <laughs> it's during lent and the reading the first reading is talking about moses carrying the 10 commandments down from mount sinai and the priest who was reading the first reading got halfway through the reading and just started laughing because it was so unbelievable that like here we are on Mount Sinai and the reading is about Moses bringing the, the Ten Commandments down. Oh my goodness. And then the gospel, because of the way it works, is about Jesus making reference to Moses and the Ten Commandments and Mount Sinai. And here we are standing in that holy place. And it was absolutely amazing to be able to be there in that space and and offer mass in that in that place where God had revealed himself in such a profound way to to the people uh, of Israel. That's incredible. Oh my goodness. 
I so badly want to go to the Holy Land and like be in the place where he was. Have you have you been to? So I've also been to Jerusalem, but I've not been to to the north into uh, Samaria or into Galilee. But but the city of Jerusalem is is a place very much like that where, yeah, you get to walk and see and be in the space where the Lord has been, you know, and and in some ways still is through his through his love and his grace. Mm hmm. Okay, your Egypt story is a good transition to the next question, which is, can a priest celebrate Mass anywhere? Ah. In someone's home? Outside? What are the rules? And does the priest need to have the bishop's permission? Well, as it turns out, you can celebrate Mass anywhere, as you says, I just got done saying. But we had to do, we, we got the opportunity to travel a lot and to celebrate Mass in some beautiful churches and some beautiful chapels. But also as a priest, that's one thing that is a real blessing is that we're able to celebrate Mass outside of a church, right? Um, the church just instructs us that we as priests are to always celebrate Mass in a dignified manner and in a dignified place. But it doesn't say that it must be in a church. And so to be able to celebrate Mass in someone's home or outside in a park, or I've had the opportunity a couple times to celebrate Mass in the mountains, again, like Mount Sinai, but also stateside. And so in Colorado and, you know, in, in the view of the, of, of the Rocky Mountains or whatever else it might be. And so I have had that opportunity. There are no rules against that as long as it's in a dignified manner, in a dignified way. And I don't need the bishop's permission uh, just to celebrate like a daily mass or even a Sunday mass um, in any of those places. Mm. This is interesting because there are people who like want an outdoor wedding and they want, how is that different than being able to celebrate mass anywhere? Yes. So the church says that the, that, a wedding mass and marriage in particular is meant to be um, this unique encounter, right? Because because uh, married couples are a sign of the church, right? So the husband is a sign of Christ, the bridegroom, and the bride is a symbol of, of the church that, that Christ has given himself for, right? And so we see in St. Paul's writings that, especially Ephesians 5, where he talks about husbands loving your wives as Christ loved the church, because Married couples are a symbol of, of the love between Christ and his church. And so for that reason, the church has, has has said that weddings, wedding masses, are to be held specifically in a church building precisely to draw out that connection between the married couple and and that symbolism with Christ and his church. So for that reason, and because they don't happen that often, and in fact, they usually only happen once in our lives, mm-hmm. so they're, they're meant to be the special and unique thing that doesn't happen every day and doesn't have to happen every day. Whereas mass, you know, a Sunday mass or a weekday mass happens more often, more regularly. And so for that reason, we need not be within a church building because, you know, we may not be able to be close to a church building. And yet that ability to be able to freely celebrate the mass um, on a daily basis gives us permission or is the reason why we have permission to be able to celebrate mass, not in a church itself. Okay. Yeah. That, that does make sense. Um, Let's get into one of these hypothetical hypothetical questions here mm. um, related to marriage. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read this whole thing and you can break it down. Uh, hypothetical situation. A woman has been married for some time. She suddenly finds herself desperately in need of a divorce. She attempts to get an annulment. She keeps getting refused. Finally, even the Pope himself tells her no. She is seemingly out of options, but can't stand being married for a moment longer. If she divorces him without annulment and gets remarried, she will not be able to receive the Eucharist anymore, which breaks her heart. 
She doesn't want to live without the bread of life, so instead she kills her husband and goes to confession, feeling genuinely remorseful for having committed the sin against God, allowing her to remarry and once more receive communion. Uh, The person asks, have I uh, fundamentally misunderstood anything here? Why is divorce punished more severely than murder? What should the woman have done? And then the second part of it is, if divorce is a sin against God, and God thinks it should never happen, what does that mean for the children born from second or third marriages? Is it God's will that they never should have existed? Was it not part of God's plan for them to be born? So a lot of questions here. Feel free to address just a little bit at a time. Yeah, that's probably better to slow it, take it little bits. You know, So the first part of a woman getting married and then getting finding herself in a situation where she's desperately in need of divorce, as the, the questioner asked. So... Uh, it's at this point, it's, it's good to lay down a few basic principles. First, when it comes to, to marriage, again, we were just talking about marriage. Um, the church takes couples seriously, right? So when a couple comes together at the altar and says, I promise to be true to you in good times and in bad in sickness and in health, I will love you and honor you all the days of my life, right? The church says, okay, you said it, you said it publicly in front of all of us we're taking you seriously. So this is part of the reason why the church in some ways is so adamant about the the sacredness and the indissolubility, as we say, of marriage, that marriage cannot be dissolved. Uh, And we even say it in the the midst of of the right of marriage, that what God has joined, man must not divide, right? So we shouldn't attempt to, to break into that space as human beings and, and break up what God has brought together, right? So that's the first thing. So the reason why uh, discussions on divorce and annulments and remarriage are um, the church is so firm on this position is precisely for that reason. The church takes couples seriously, unless there's explicit evidence to the contrary, right? That says we didn't actually really mean this or we didn't know what we were doing, um, something of that nature. So that's the first thing to say. The second thing to say is that there is a distinction between divorce uh, and annulments and then remarriage. So that's something to kind of also keep in mind. So Divorce, you know, in general, and we see this in the Old Testament, right? There's a passage, I forget now exactly where it is in in the Old Testament, but it literally, it's one of the prophets saying, speaking on behalf of God and saying, I hate divorce, says the Lord. So it's pretty strong language. Now, the the way that the church has come to understand in the Lord's mercy, that um, he's saying, the prophet is saying that, or he's saying that on behalf of God, precisely because of the gravity of that. Now, in general, the church doesn't in any way encourage a divorce, right? But there are some situations which, for the sake, for example, of the protection of one of the spouses or the protection of the spouse and a spouse and children, that the church uh, permits a, a separation, right? And a divorce really is only a civil, uh, a civil law, a civil act, right? It's not an ecclesial act, it's not, a, not an act of the church. So, in order to protect um, oneself, a spouse or a spouse and some of the children or all the children might need to make recourse to a divorce for legal protection, right? Sometimes it reaches that degree. And so, um, as this question kind of asks, right, being desperately in need of divorce might be because of some of those things, like the emotional or physical health or even life of a spouse is in jeopardy and something grave and serious that would require that separation and maybe even a divorce for, for legal protection. Okay. So that's divorce, but, and the church permits that in some cases, actually. Um, and, the, and yet, so then an annulment, right? An annulment 
is something different than a divorce, right? Some people will say that annulment's a Catholic version of divorce, quote unquote, but it's really not because a divorce says whatever's happened up to this point, we don't care. We're not going to investigate. The divorce is from this point forward, it's, it's over, right? And again, it's only a legal and a secular decision. An annulment, on the other hand, goes back and looks at the roots of the marriage and says, was it from the beginning what it was supposed to be? Right? We're not interested in what it is now. We're interested in where it started, right? If all the, the, the elements were in place at the beginning, then God has formed this bond with the right matter, right? We talk about matter and form in the sacraments and the matter is all there, right? When you take all the pieces and put them all together, then you have what you intended to build, right? So God builds one flesh from two. And so if all the elements of a, of a Catholic marriage are there from the beginning, then that marriage is is absolute right and 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 not dissolvable by the church the church doesn't have that authority but if the church looks back and says the elements that are required are missing some of them or maybe more of them then an annulment says that the 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 components or some of them weren't there and so there wasn't a marriage from the beginning right so there's a fundamental difference between a divorce and an annulment a divorce looks at the present moment annulment looks at the beginnings so um so an annulment if it happens right um, is is an acknowledgement that there wasn't a marriage right at the beginning, and so this is why the church makes those investigations and things and so on, right? So, so in in the case of someone who gets divorced but doesn't seek an annulment from the church and gets remarried, right? They they're already in one marriage, right? And so they can't get remarried. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas an annulment says there was no first marriage, so you can, you can marry for the first time, really, actually, in a real way and in a complete way. So there's there, that's kind of some of the groundwork, right? To kind of keep in mind some of these things. So um, so then the question asks, right, about remarriage. Okay, so we talked about that a little bit. Um, but it says, so she kills her husband and goes to confession, allowing her to remarry and once more receive communion. Okay, so pause right there. Because according to canon law, this is the legal kind of binding document of the church that is that flows from scripture and tradition and the church's authority that comes from Christ. The code of canon law says that the murder of one spouse is an impediment to future marriages. So if I am married and kill my spouse, uh, that does not therefore dissolve the, ma- the, the wedding or the, the, the marriage. So I can go marry somebody else. I can't do that. Right. And so while yes, the marriage ends because death ends the marriage, I have done something that has, has in some way so violated something so sacred. And so the church says you, you can't get married because you, if you kill your spouse, right? So, right. The church isn't referring to, it's not till murder parts you. Yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> if you just kill him, then we problem death. over. Right? So, and I think about this too. Yeah. Sometimes you go, you go, well, if I just kill him, it solves a problem, right? Marriage or death, death ends the marriage. Well, not exactly. Not exactly. <laughs> not exactly. So, so it isn't the case that if I just kill my spouse, then I'm free to marry somebody else. I'm mm-hmm. not. So that's why, um, in some sense, um, that doesn't make divorce greater than than murder, right? Um, and then the, let's see, what are the other questions? Uh, what should the woman have done, right? So, you know, honestly, again, going back to the original part of that question, right? Divorce, again, for the sake of physical or mental health or emotional health or something else, protection of a spouse or protection of children, um, this separation, right, uh, physically living in two different places uh, is is obviously permitted and encouraged by the church in certain circumstances and even divorce for the sake of legal protection, right? But again, a, a spouse who is 
committed to their vows and takes their own vows seriously, regardless of what the other spouse does, right? They're bound by their promise, solemn promise before God. And so what are they to do? Um, This is not easy. The church understands this. And yet there's a way in which they're called before God to remain faithful, right? Even if the other spouse has not remained faithful and and can be a reflection of God's love for his people being faithful even in their infidelity. I know when I say that, acknowledging the fact that it is very difficult and it's very challenging and people who are in that situation deeply deeply need the love of people around them to support them encourage them in this way because it is not an easy path to follow and this is what the church and our lord is calling us to do and so even if you know if if an annulment should be granted praise god if not then there is that call to fidelity you know and then so again so if divorce is a sin against god okay we've already spoken about that a little bit um and God thinks it should never happen. God doesn't want it to happen, right? So this brings us to another kind of distinction that was really helpful, is really helpful for us, is God's, uh, we call God's permissive will and God's active will, right? So there are things that God actively chooses that they should come about, and there are things that he simply permits, right? So all sin is permitted by God, right? Because there's nothing that is outside of the will of God, right? All things are in God's will. And this is the mystery of his, of his goodness and his power. And it's sometimes even a scandal to some people that God would permit, or even we could say, will evil or will sin, right? Of course, he allows it, right? But why would he allow it? Um, we go to, back to St. Paul in his letter to the Romans. He says in, in chapter eight, he says, God makes all things work for good for those who love him. God makes all things work for good. And so there's this mysterious, mysterious way in which God can permit even the worst of evils um, and can bring about a greater good out of that evil, right? And so does God will such evils in the world as divorce? And, and no, he doesn't, right? And, and the, the violence that, that spouses can inflict upon each other and upon their children, of course not, right? And yet he permits it, right, for the sake, because he can still use that and incorporate that into his plan, um, and and bring about good in there right so what what does that mean for the children born from a second or third marriage right they're permitted right but they're not responsible for the the sins of their parents so to speak right and so god brings them into existence again god um they are they are each and every single person is chosen and loved by god right it's not that god doesn't want them right it may not be part of his original plan but again he can incorporate them into the into the fullness of his plan because there's nothing that's outside of the scope of his of his providence, of his will, or of his love. And so it's not that he uh, wills that they should never have existed, right? He has to have willed that they exist, right? It wasn't part of the original plan, but there's all sorts of things that going back even to the crucifixion that are uh, not part of quote unquote the original plan. And yet they bring about even a greater good in the world. Um, and God, God brings about a greater good even in the midst of that evil, which shows the power of his goodness all the more. Those children are still loved. They, they're still beloved of him. And, and, and the church reflects that truth by, you know, by letting them be baptized and by giving them the sacraments and make, make them full participants in the life of the church. And so there's a way in which they, they, they are part of God's plan in a very real way, right? Absolutely. Um, hmm. Just um, clarifying, like, why is divorce punished more severely than murder? Mm-hmm. Um, of course, you already addressed that. Like, if you murder, you you can't remarry. Um, but murder, go to confession, receive the Eucharist again. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, okay. And then there was 
I am not married to someone else, but like acting like I'm married to someone else, even though there's a marriage that already exists. So like that would be adultery. I go to confession. I can't receive the Eucharist. So what's the distinction? Yeah, that's also a good point. Yeah, that that brings up something as well that's really important just in general for the Christian life, right? So a person commits murder, goes to confession, and then and they're sorry for that, and then they can go to communion. But the person who is divorced and remarried and is sorry for it goes to confession and can't go to communion, right? And, and even if they go to confess those sins, they actually can't be absolved because they're in uh, a marriage that is not not blessed by the church. Why is that? Uh, there's a real fundamental thing that, again, gets back to the root of our of our Christian life, and it's the fact that part of our contrition, a part of our sorrow, means that I am going, I, what I have done in the past, I no longer want to do. And I am changing my will in some sense to go a different direction than I have been before, right? So the person who walked into the confessional with contrition or even attrition, we could say, right, sorrow that I don't want to go to hell, not mm. so much sorrow that I've offended God, but mm. whatever is there, whatever minimal, you know, contrition or attrition is there, I'm sorry that I committed murder and I go to confession and I, and I confess that and I seek absolution and I get it. Um, there's an acknowledgement that I can change my life and have turned turned that corner, so to speak. I made that that conversion towards God. Um, a person who's divorced and remarried, um, who goes into the confessional, right, in some way still hasn't made that turn of the heart, right? Because they're still perhaps living with the person to whom they're remarried or the, their second spouse. Um, they are living in that in that life as if they were married, though they are not in in the eyes of the church. And so there isn't that change of the interior yet, right? They're still living in their old way and living according to sin. And so they to be truly sorry is to stop living the way we've lived before, right? So the person who's committed murder can't undo it, right? Unfortunately, and yet they can they can choose to not do it again and say, I don't want to do that. And I wish I hadn't done that. And then if I could, I'd go back and change it. There's that change of will. For the person who's divorced and remarried, there's not yet that change of will, which makes it not possible for them to receive absolution or receive communion. But if they were to stop living with the second spouse and were to repent and then go to confession, then in yes. that case, yes. back in communion? Yes, exactly. Right. So they move out uh, of their second home or... The church also makes permissions for what are called brother-sister agreements. And so a couple who, especially for couples who are beyond the ch age of, of childbirth, childbearing, um, the church submit, permits that they would live as quote-unquote brother and sister, right? So living under the same roof, but sleeping in separate beds, right? And living as if they were brother and sister, not husband and wife, and all that comes with that, right? And so those kinds of ways to acknowledge that we are not going to act like we're married, right? Taking off rings, for example, is another gesture that says we're not going to live as, as husband and wife, but simply as brother and sister in Christ. So there are ways to um, make concrete uh, changes in our lives to um, demonstrate that, that change. Can I just take a moment to say that this is so good. I feel like I'm back in junior year of theology. <laughs> yeah, these are great things, you know, and it's so beautiful to have that reflection in our life and 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 know the ways that God is so merciful and repent in our repentance. And yet at the same time, he does challenge us and he calls us sometimes to do hard things. And, and that's the reality of the Christian life sometimes. Yeah, for sure. Um, okay, I want to get into some of these other questions here. 
um, maybe addressing both of these at the same time, how to surrender and how to suffer well. Oh, good questions. So we talked about this a little bit last time, kind of got our feet really close to those waters and, and didn't quite get there. But but how do we suffer and surrender well? I think to, to learn to suffer well, to learn to surrender well, or learn, to learn to do anything well, for that matter, is to simply start by doing it not well and, and just do it little by little. So how do I suffer well? Well, I start little by little suffering, right? So maybe I just... Uh, have little penances that I do from time to time, not just during Lent, but throughout the entire year, right? So the church always says that we should do some form of penance every Friday throughout the year. Usually that takes the form of not eating meat as we do during Lent and on Ash Wednesday. And yet at the same time, it can be other things. And so just those little ways of doing penance, right? And I found one year that I had given up desserts, right? As perhaps many of us normally do. And yet I I don't know whether I read this or somebody told me this, but the idea came to when I would walk into the refectory at the seminary that I would I would see the brownies and I would look at the brownies because I love chocolate mm-hmm. and I would say, Jesus, I love you more. And and boy, I I wasn't I was just saying it with my lips and not with my heart at the beginning. But but over the course of time, I began to see that the reason why I was not eating brownies, which I love, and the sisters make such delicious brownies and they're great. But to look at them and go, I am choosing one good over another good, right? And so to to the the quote unquote suffering, yes, my life is so hard of not having not being able to eat brownies, but to learn in that little moment to suffer right? To suffer for the sake of the love of Christ and to do it with intentionality. Uh, little by little makes it easier to suffer more and more. And so to be able to see everything then in the light of that, like all the little nuance or annoyances of life and sufferings and miseries that come great and small to, to, to see them as an embracing of the cross, right? And same with surrender. Uh, I find that, you know, to uh, little prayers that have always been really beautiful um, in my in my prayer life that I've found. The first one is the Litany of Humility by Cardinal Duval. And the second one is the the prayer of surrender by St. Charles de Foucauld. And that, that prayer by St. Charles um, on, on surrendering ourselves to Christ is really an intentional way of explicitly saying every day, Lord, I give myself to you in trust and love. And, and that way of, you know, starting out with a 30 second or two minute prayer each day. But the more that I prayed it, the more that it began to sort of echo throughout my day. And I began to think more and more about it throughout my day. So that in moments throughout my day, when I realized something was coming at me where I was like, I don't have control over this. This isn't what I want. I see this as part of my assignment and my vocation as a priest, but I don't like it. Lord, I surrender this time to you. I surrender myself to you in this moment and I give myself totally to you, right? Um, And little by little over the course of many, many years, I've seen where that ability to to become better at suffering and better at surrendering uh, has has increased in time, you know. But it takes first um, in being intentional about suffering in little ways or surrendering in little ways before we can learn to surrender or suffer well. Mm. You talking about the brownies made me think of uh, think this uh, this might be a good question. Um, alcohol. How does that fit into the life of a Catholic? Ah, yes, all good things. So two things. The first one, how does how does alcohol fit in the life of a Catholic? Well, the 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 first thing that came to mind was the wedding feast at Cana, right? <laughs> so what's the first miracle that Jesus performs, right? 
as a sign so that his disciples would begin to believe in him, right? This is what St. John says in chapter 2 of his gospel. He turns water into wine, right? He creates a massive amount of alcohol, right? (laughs) And he doesn't do so for the sake of, you know, just a party, but there's this prophecy in the Old Testament that says, when the Messiah come, the, the mountains will flow with wine, right? And so, so when he does this, again, his disciples began to believe in him, says St. John, right? So there's this way in which um, the joy, and we look all through the Old Testament, especially in the Psalms, right? Wine brings joy to man's heart, right? And so there's this way in which um, that the, the, the natural material things of this world, which are in themselves good because God made them, um, he wants us to be able to enjoy them, right? And he takes those things, especially alcohol in the form of wine, and ennobles it even more by making it the, the, the vehicle by which he communicates his blood to us, right? And so there's that way in which he sees the nobility in this good thing, right? There's also the line from G.K. Chesterton where he says, wherever the Catholic sun doth shine, there is always laughter and good red wine. <laughs> so it's fantastic, right? But th- these things are not bad. They're good, Right. And, um, but they must be used in moderation, right? And they must be used in the whole context of the hierarchy of goods in our Catholic faith, right? And so um, they fit in the life of a Catholic in, as a way to help us celebrate moments of joy, right? And um, it's usually over a good beer that we often have good conversations, though not always, but sometimes. And, you know, being able to use those as moments to lighten our hearts sometimes from the heaviness of the world, and um, bring us into um, deeper conversations with one another um, in moments of joy and celebration uh, to be able to uh, raise our hearts and minds to God. Yeah, if anyone's interested on a little personal testimony from this, I have an episode with Hannah Stedman where we talk about uh, living in sobriety. So go check that out. Perfect. Um, Yeah, so let's see. Okay, here's another interesting moral question. Um, As a healthcare professional, we talk about amputations as part of our curriculum. According to the Catholic faith, how should one dispose of an amputated limb? I've heard of people storing them in freezers so they can be buried with the limb. I've heard of people cremating them. It's a concept that has been hard for me to understand in relation to faith. Yes. So I had to go do some research on this question because this is something I did not know. So apparently they used to have, at least either in parts of cemeteries or they had specific cemeteries dedicated to amputated body parts. Really? Yeah. And they would just have graves for amputated body parts. There's never been, well, that's not true. There have been in the past times when Catholics had an obligation to uh, bury um, not just full bodies of the deceased, but also uh, amputated limbs even up to the time, I think, of maybe Leo the Thirteenth in the 18, late 1800s. So there is no currently no obligation for a Catholic to uh, see to the burying of amputated limbs, right? But I think that the best way to understand this is simply to, within the, the umbrella of a respect for the human body, right? So this is part of the reason why we have such reverence for the dead and the bodies of the dead, because we see these as temples of the Holy Spirit and signs of the people that we loved in this world. And so we want to dispose of their bodies in a dignified way for that reason. Um, and and normally with the deceased, we bury them in the ground, right? But with a, an amputated limb, right, it might be overly burdensome, we could say, to keep an arm or a leg until one dies. Maybe mm-hmm. one loses a limb early in their life and they, we wouldn't ask them to spend the whole of their life carrying this thing around, you know, and right. oh, I'm just waiting to die so I can bury my <laughs> arm with me, you know, when I die. But 
um, but if maybe perhaps it's it's taken by the hospital or kind of disposed of in a suitable way, in a dignified way, and it's not used for um, immoral or inappropriate things, you know, then we can do that. And another way I was thinking that this could be resolved is maybe if you, um, especially if you know that it's something's going to happen, right, that an amputation is going to take place, to maybe call a local Catholic funeral home and ask them about a way that they might inter it in, in a grave or something or another place in the cemetery that, um, that they could kind of easily do on, on your behalf. But there's no necessary, no necessity to, to any of that. Um, it's simply just a um, sort of a, a, a directive to have a respect for the human body. Right. I'm not even sure what the procedure is for that, but I'm assuming it's like already respectful. So right. it's probably fine. Yeah. Um, speaking of death, um, <laughs> why was the catechism revised with regards to its stance on the death penalty? Ooh. Are Catholics free to disagree with JP2 and Pope Francis and their views on it? Good question. So again, here's another place where I thought it would be helpful for us to make a distinction. So there's a distinction between um, something that is intrinsically good or intrinsically evil and something that is prudently not to be done. Right, so those are kind of three terms we need to sort of lay down. So the church has, has never said and continues to not say that the death penalty is intrinsically evil because we go back to, for example, the time of St. Thomas Aquinas and he explains how the death penalty uh, and, and just war, going all the way back to St. Augustine, is um, valid means of punishing wickedness, right? So, so it is not considered intrinsically evil even now by the church to employ the death penalty. So what John Paul II, St. John Paul II and, and Pope Francis were doing and are doing is to say that um, the death penalty is not intrinsically evil. What they're saying is that in their pastoral prudence, they see that in the West at least, so the Western, Western world, or Europe and, and North America and South America, in most places, the use of the death penalty as a punishment for wickedness is not needed. And there are other means that are more in keeping with the dignity of the human person that ought to be employed instead of the death penalty, right? And so there's this, this call for the removal of the death penalty. And um, again, so the, the change in the catechism wasn't to, to make this flip between something that was formerly intrinsically okay to now something that is intrinsically evil and can never be done because that would be a changing of church teaching and, and that's not possible. What, what the two popes were doing was saying in this period in the history of the world, in the Western civilization, it doesn't seem necessary to us, right? Now, in general, one could say that because this is a decision of prudence that um, one need not follow it. That being the case, um, if the Pope says it, and my little experience says that they have far more information from far more places and far more input from people who know um, much more about things in the realm of moral theology and global politics than I do, and so their ability to know and so many more things and to have a much better judgment based on that greater amount of knowledge says that I better have a really, 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 really good reason to disagree with them. Um, if I'm going to do so, and I'm and I'm not sure with my slightly advanced <laughs> theological formation and, and moral formation to find any reason to disagree with them. Now, there's this great line from Cardinal Newman when he says, 10,000 difficulties do not make a single doubt, 
right? So I may not understand why they're so strong on this, uh, but that doesn't mean that I have to therefore think they're wrong, right? It can be something that I struggle with. I can accept it and still not understand why it is the case, right? And so it, this, with this as, with, as well as with many other teachings of the church, right? There's, there's a way in which I may or may not understand it, but I can still accept it, right? And I accept it not because I understand the argument, because I think the conclusion necessarily follows from from the 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 premises, the principles, but simply because of the one who is saying it. Right? This is what faith is about. I accept on faith, um, on the authority of the one who is speaking, right? especially when it comes to God, right? Who can neither deceive nor be deceived. We say um, that I accept what he says as true because of him, not because I understand the words that he is saying. I'm going to leave people to wrestle with that and I'm going to move on to That's great. <laughs> some yes. other questions. Um, just a couple more here. So from an education major, what do our young little humans need to form their minds and souls from education systems and from teachers? Yeah. So a couple of generic things. I, I know that there's probably so many little particulars of the art of education that we could talk about, right? But I think just some basic principles to lay down uh, that I find to be really helpful. And this goes back to even the insights of some of the ancient Greek writers, Plato and Aristotle, that little minds and souls need to know who they are and why they're in this world and where they're going in life, right? They need to know that both in a natural way and in a supernatural way. And so that they would know that they are uh, an image created in the image and likeness of God, right? That they have a body and a soul, that they have been given a an identity that includes their their sex and their God-given gender, right, among other things, that they have an intellect and will, which are the highest powers in their souls, that they are they are created to to pursue what is authentically true and to choose what is authentically good, right, and to not give into lesser goods unless they fit into those higher goods, that, um, that we are created to live in this world to love, to love ultimately in the light of God and to be loved by him and that we are created for eternal life, right? That we are redeemed by the blood of Christ, um, destined for an eternal homeland. And so I think in some ways, if we can kind of begin to let those um, principles kind of make their way into every aspect and dimension of education, I think those, uh, as they get unpacked and, and played out in the classroom, those become the things that form little minds and souls to to help them um, live out their vocation in Christ and their vocation in the world. Just one little plug, a good uh, priest friend of mine, Father Andrew Heaslip, uh, was formerly the director of religious education for the Diocese of Lincoln. He's now teaching theology classes at Mount St. Mary's Seminary in Emmitsburg, Maryland. And while he was in charge of the Office of Religious Education, he put together, I think with the help of, of many other uh, educators in elementary and middle school and high school education, a kind of a theology of the body curriculum that can be incorporated into the whole of the religious curriculum from kindergarten all the way to 12th grade, right? And so seeing ways in which um, we understand our humanity um, in light of God from the time that we're, what, four, five, six, all the way until we graduate in, at the age of 18, 17, 18, 19, whatever it is, right? And so um, that as a little plug is a way for us to be able to see how some of those things can be kind of incorporated and plugged in, woven into the whole of our of our kind of Christian vision of the world is 
is uh, I think something that's been really helpful and will continue to be helpful, hopefully, uh, in our diocese and maybe other dioceses around the country and the world. Where is that available? Is it just for people who are in education or is it like anyone could read this? That's a great question. I think that he has made it available on the diocesan website. Okay. But don't quote me on that. <laughs> maybe Sweet. email me if you're really interested and I'll talk to Father Heaslip and see if he'll uh, cough it up if okay. it isn't already available on the diocesan website. Sounds good. Okay. We somewhat covered this in our first part, but the last question I have here is just tips for being mindful of Christ at every moment. That's a great question. So again, as I said before, when it comes to suffering well or surrendering well, um, I think the, the tips for being mindful of Christ at every moment or being well at being mindful of Christ, we could say as well, is the same. It works on the same principle, right? I shared this in the last episode, my own vocation story, and the importance of of learning to just carve out time every day, you know, 20 minutes, 30 minutes of my day every day to come down to the Newman Center and to just be before the Lord in the Blessed Sacrament. And and the power, the transformative power of that daily habit um, is is real, right? And so so being mindful of Christ on a daily basis to know when I wake up in the morning, like I'm going to go down and pray, right? And I'm going to go spend time with him. That that intention of, which started out being being mindful of him for only a portion of my day, um, kind of grew over the course and is growing still, right? It's still, it's not that I'm aware of Christ at the moment. Mind, <laughs> please do not think I am at that moment in my life, for that point in my life. But that I'm able to have a greater awareness throughout my day uh, is is all the more real because of that that beginning habit maybe this is worth saying right now because people might think to themselves oh father it's so easy for you to just be aware of you know christ at every moment and you pray and this is really great because you're a priest let me tell you something when i was in high school i was going to mass every sunday and going to confession once in a year once a year and that's about it my moral life was not entirely in line with that of the church and it wasn't until I got to probably the end of my sophomore year in college that I really even began to have a prayer life at all. And and yet it was, so it was starting a prayer life as a college student that having that daily intentionality about being with the Lord and and letting it grow. And, and so that that's the place because really what we're talking about in all these things, we talked about this a little bit last time in terms of meditative prayer with scripture and how transformative that is. Fundamentally what we're talking about is growing in relationship with Christ, right? Who are we trying to grow close to? We're trying to grow close to another person. And how do you become friends with somebody? You spend time with them. This is how this is, right? And you look at a young couple, right? When they first start dating, okay? They already have a certain affection for each other. And then they spend more time together, right? And it gets to a point where, you know, they start thinking about each other all the time and they do things for each other even when they're apart, right? And even perhaps sometimes they get annoying to their friends because they're like, oh, I can't stop thinking about him. <laughs> like, oh, barf. But, but this is the way it's supposed to be with us in our relationship with Christ, mm-hmm. right? We're supposed to become consumed with thinking about him, right? And it just grows little by little over time the way any human relationship does. So little by little, we grow in that mindfulness and awareness of Christ throughout our day so that we reach a point probably many, many years down the road from where we began to being able to live out what St. Paul says, uh, that we would pray always without ceasing. But that's many years down the road. But to get from here to there requires just that 
little growth over the course of many, many years. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for talking with me today, Father, and for answering all of our questions. I'd love to come back and do another episode, whole episode on education, but for another time. So. That's right. Yeah, I'd be happy to come on back. Sweet. Okay, would you like to close us in prayer? Of course. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we praise you. We thank you for the love that you pour upon us every day. We ask you to help us by your grace that we might be drawn ever more fully into your love so that we might serve you with all of our hearts and come one day into your loving embrace. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to this episode. Make sure to follow Catholic in College on social media and subscribe to the podcast to get notified about new episodes. Finally, remember that you're never alone in your faith. Until next episode, let's all keep striving to be open, be present, and be loved.